I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 8. We'll be wrapping up our look at this chapter this morning. Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 13 through 18. Aristotle said, happiness is the meaning and the purpose of life, the whole aim of human existence. And that's partially true. I think the Bible clarifies that lasting happiness is the result of living according to God's will. And that doesn't mean that we can be, that we will be free of all suffering as long as we're obedient to God's will. Uh, It doesn't mean that we can I'm sorry, it does mean that we can learn to rejoice in the midst of our suffering because we know that God is using it for his glory and for our good. Romans 8.28. So the point I want us to consider this morning is a challenging one, a convicting one. It's that we will not enjoy all of the benefits of God's promises when we are not living according to his revealed will. And so if that's true, then the reverse would also be true. The best way to enjoy all of the benefits of God's promises is to live according to his revealed will. And so that involves two aspects that we'll look at this morning. Um, and we'll get to those later. But before we read this passage, let me ask the Lord for his blessing upon our time. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Every time we open it, we, we want to come expecting you to speak. Lord, we know that we can read your word in uh, a way that is not effectual, in a way that simply views it as any other book or thinks of it as just something that, is, uh, that might be helpful at times. Lord, we want to view this as your word, as your instruction to us, your revelation of, of your will for our lives. In fact, to give us purpose and meaning and that we might find happiness and joy, Lord. So we ask that you would open our eyes this morning, give us ears to hear, soften our hearts to respond as doers of your word and not hearers only, as we consider from James 1. And may you be glorified as we hear from you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 13 through 18. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof, and in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua the son of Nun to that day, the people of Israel had, had not done so, and there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days 
And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Amen. This is God's holy word. So the first point, if you're following in your outline that you can fill in, is to study God's law with purpose. We'll see this from verses 13 through 15. To study God's law with purpose. According to Nehemiah 8.2, if you look back at that verse, Ezra read to the law of the Israelites on the first day of the seventh month. So sometime in, this, in September... And then on the next day, the patriarchs gathered together with the priests, and that's what we see happening here in verse 13. They gathered together with the priests and Levites to study the law. The priests were a subset of qualified men within the Levitical tribe, and so we know that they're all gathering together, right, to study his word as as part of their um, responsibility, but who were the heads of the father's houses? Who is this referring to? Well, it could, it could mean every husband and father in the community. Everyone who had gathered together who was a husband or father uh, had felt compelled to be a part of this. But I think it probably refers to heads of, of larger units of tribes or clans. Um, but the, the point of their presence there is to study the law with the spiritual leaders in order to then disseminate the information that they receive, the study, that the insights that they gain, in order to take that information and spread it to the rest of the members of their families. And so it does not tell us where they gathered, but the text does say that they came together to Ezra. So wherever Ezra was, that's where they, they decided to gather. It seems to indicate that they would have found him in some place of study, probably his routine as a priest and scribe. He most likely had a station within the temple precincts somewhere where he could read and write and, and perform his responsibilities. And so I, I doubt this would have been a very large setting, um, and he likely didn't have many visitors throughout his career. And so this would have been a kind of a once-in-a-lifetime experience having a group, a rather large group of men joining him in his study, seeking to understand God's law. And they would not have had this, um, they would not have had their own copies, right? As if we get together for Bible study, we all bring our Bible, we open the Bible, we read it together, we're studying it together, and we're all looking at our own copies. That's, that's not what going to be happening here. They're listening to Ezra as he reads from the law, and explains what he's reading to them. So he's doing what he had already done the previous day for five to six hours. And these men had listened to him there, probably while standing, and now the next day, they've come back to study God's law further. They want more. Right? They are delighting in God's law. They can't get enough of it. Psalm 119.35 says, Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. It's clear that wasn't always the case for this community. The, the law does not appear to have been a delight for them just a few months prior, potentially, at least not for the majority of them. But something remarkable occurred in their hearts that previous day. As Ezra read to them, right? they're hearing the law read and taught the entire morning, and they're now moved to study it further the next day. And so they seek help from their spiritual oversight. 
A pastor friend mentioned how a group of men would join him at his office or maybe in a coffee shop at times to study uh, the passage that he was going to preach the next week. And he used that time to, to teach them his own method of studying God's word and how he prepared for sermons. Um, and then their interaction with him would give him time to kind of, uh, you know, would give him thoughts and additional insights to consider areas that he would need to address from the text, questions that they might have had that he didn't anticipate prior to those discussions. And so it was this mutually beneficial time of research and discussion over God's word where they, they were edifying one another. They sharpened one another with their questions. And so that kind of, this, it's sort of like an Ezra cohort, right? This kind of, it's, a, it's a great application of this passage. We have to assume that Ezra, being an expert in the law, already knew the details of this feast, right? He was aware that the Israelites were not celebrating it, or at least not celebrating it according to the law. He was an expert, as you read in Ezra 7, 6, an expert, he's skilled in the law of Moses. So he knows these verses. My assumption is that he intentionally read from these passages on this second day. And he's provoking them with some, some convicting words. And so he, along with the other men, had concluded the previous day by comforting them. Right, telling them to, re, to rejoice. Right? They had this deep conviction over their sin, but they needed the joy of forgiveness and celebration. And so it's possible that this was the, the very text that convicted so many the prior day. Regardless, though, they learned about the Feast of Booths as he's teaching them. God had instructed Israel to celebrate this feast on the 15th day of the seventh month. You can read about it in more detail in Leviticus 23. But this would give them two weeks to prepare for it because this is only the second day of the seventh month, as we've already seen. And he's talking about something that's to take place on the 15th day. So they have two weeks here to prepare. That means that they would immediately proclaim in the towns that they should go out to the hills, collect some branches, and that they could use those branches. Some would, would make a roof for their booth. Others would be part of the wall that would surround, um, you know, that they would make their, their four walls and have this, each family have its own booth as their shelter. God gave them this feast as a reminder of his faithfulness to them uh, as they were wandering in the wilderness. And so they learned about the following requirements as they studied God's word, as they read about the law and the instruction to partake of the Feast of Booths, to celebrate it regularly. They learned that they were to make booths, which we've already explained, Leviticus 23. They learned that they were to rejoice the whole week, Deuteronomy 16, verses 13 through 15. They learned that every seven years, the law was to be read along with the celebration. So every day, Ezra would get up and read the law uh, to them. You read about that requirement in Deuteronomy 31, verses 10 through 13. And then also from Numbers 29. So, so Ezra, being the expert that he was, knew where to jump around in all of these passages of the Pentateuch to point out all the different elements that were to be a part of this Feast of Booths that they were to celebrate. And immediately they would go, they would recognize the areas where they were not being faithful in that celebration. 
that they were to have a solemn assembly on the eighth day, according to Numbers 29, verse 35. So this was meant to connect them to their rich family heritage, to, to reflect upon the ways in which God had preserved them, how remarkable it was, in fact, for the Lord to preserve them for 40 years in the wilderness. So as long as they were neglecting the Feast of Booths, they were missing out on the privileges that God promised they would enjoy through that celebration. And so I thought about kind of just generically encouraging all of you to a more systematic method of studying God's word, understanding his will for you. But this verse highlights the importance of a particular group studying the Bible together. It specifically calls the heads of households to be involved in Bible study. And so that's who I want to address in this application, this first point of application. If, if you're a, a woman or a child, this instruction impacts you to a significant degree, even though you're not the direct target of it. But men, I do want to encourage you strongly to join us Tuesday nights, right, if you're available. And I, I know there's other means by which you can receive that encouragement and instruction and edification, and many of you do that. But I want to encourage you specifically to do this in-person in study, where we are looking at the book of Galatians together. And I want to encourage you to, to sharpen one another. Um, it, this, is, this is an activity, right? There, there's going to be activities on Tuesday nights for everyone, but your presence, I think, is potentially the most critical to the health of our church. As the spiritual leaders of your homes, you need to sharpen one another, hold one another accountable, bear one another's burdens, lift one another up, pray for one another, be in one another's lives. And so the goal is that you take that, what you learn on Tuesday nights, back into your homes and share it with your families, within your community. Right? Your example throughout the week in fact, impacts your wives and children far more than a sermon on Sunday mornings or even a worship service on Sunday mornings can do. And so imagine the, the testimonies of these families right, that, that they would give if we were to ask them to reflect back on that day where they, first, where they celebrated the Feast of Booths and all of its, its uh, understanding all the different details and aspects of that celebration that they were to take part in ask them how it had an impact upon their homes. As they studied God's word, they would have caught glimpses of the Messiah. They would have begun to, to gain traces of insights into God's plan of redemption. They might have even begun to understand that this Feast of Booths ultimately pointed them to a day when God would not only preserve them in their suffering, but when he would himself tabernacle among them through his son, Jesus Christ, and suffer for them. On their behalf, the word made flesh. Their hearts would have burned within them as they understood more and more about the covenant faithfulness of their God, as we see exemplified in Luke 24, 32, as Jesus taught them from the word. They would have been eager to share what they were learning with others so that the whole family might rejoice in God's provision for them. And so when fathers begin to lead their homes with the compassion and sacrificial love of their Savior, 
the whole church benefits. When all of the families within a church are filled with grateful obedience, communities are reformed. And through it all, God is glorified because we recognize all that he has accomplished by his spirit. And so the purpose for which you study God's law is to understand what obedience looks like. And so that's the next point. Obey God's law with joy, verses 16 through 18. So upon hearing proclamation, um, or upon hearing the proclamation from Ezra, all of the people uh, got to work on their booths. Right? They, they took that instruction, they, they, they proclaimed it to the whole community. They went out into the neighboring towns as well. All right? They told everyone. And, they, and as that word spread, men, women, and children all began taking part in gathering together and building this booth for their families. They come to Jerusalem, they travel there, and they begin, some of them who already lived there just begin going out into the, the fields and grabbing what they need and bringing it back in. Right, but this is a project for the whole family that they would accomplish together. They spent the next few weeks making their booths in various locations. Uh, some used their own roof or courtyard. We know that some were traveling in, so they wouldn't have had their own roof to use. And so they begin to use the square at the water gate and the gate of Ephraim. We know some of them even uh, found space in the, in the temple courts. Um, the gate of Ephraim is not mentioned in Nehemiah 3, but it, it's probably part of the, pre, the uh, pre-exilic wall that they ended up not rebuilding. So some section around um, the city that probably pointed or, or led out to Ephraim. Um, but they weren't, there wouldn't have been many places, if you had entered the city on these, during these few weeks, there wouldn't have been many places you would have looked and not seen someone taking branches, putting together some booth for their family. It would have been a pretty, pretty amazing thing to witness. And so you could imagine all of the, the parenting opportunities that this brought. Uh, dads teaching their sons how to break off the branches without hurting themselves. Uh, moms helping their daughters to carry those bundles back to the location where they're putting the booths together. Everyone learning how to, how to properly fasten these branches together to bind them to make a sturdy structure. Those like myself who might be DIY challenged would have had neighbors that they would have asked to help, right? Teach me what you're doing, because that looks cool, way better than what I've put together over here. And so this celebration would have not only strengthened the family bond, it would have strengthened the community, right? The bond as they work together, it would have knit them together in this experience. Now, I know some of you are thinking, if you were there, you would try to find any justification for sleeping in your own home. You might, you might help with the booth, okay, this is fun, and yeah, like, let's, let's, let's do that, but man, I, I got a bed, and I want to sleep there, and it's so much more convenient to do everything in my home, right? I've got everything with me. Maybe you'd have even brought up the, the concern about safety or something like that. In verse 17, we learn that they didn't just make booths, they lived in them for the week. And what might be even more insane is that it says there was very great rejoicing. That was part of the command. 
Part of the requirement to celebrate the Feast of Booths was to rejoice, but there was very great rejoicing. There, there's no suggestion that the mothers are off to the side, arms crossed, refusing to have any fun. The whole assembly was happy to obey the law. It's interesting that this is the only festival you find written about in, in the Old Testament that commands rejoicing. It's the only one that commands it. Maybe God knew so many would be prone to grumble about the requirements, the inconvenience. But instead of grumbling here, this community was filled with very great rejoicing, exceedingly great joy. That's not to suggest that they're all enthusiastic about being inconvenienced. They're like, this is so great. I'll never go back to my home, right? That's not what they're saying. They're recognizing, though, that the Feast of Booth, this celebration that they're enjoying together, is accomplishing something. And maybe they noticed that their spouses were more engaged than typical. Maybe they saw their kids were staring at their phones and playing video games a little less during this week. Ultimately, I believe that they were rejoicing because they were living their lives for the glory of God. That they understood now why they were doing it and how to do it according to his will. And because they lived according to his will, they naturally received joy from seeking to honor the Lord. And so there's something, a, a bit of a question that I want to address at this point. And, and we see here that it says that they had not experienced this. Um, or it says in verse 17, And all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in those booths from the days of four, from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. So there's the suggestion that the Israelites had not celebrated the festival since the days of Joshua. Um, when the first group of exiles returned after, which was probably about 100 years earlier, uh, from the exile, there was a decree by Cyrus in Ezra 1. They returned, and we read in Ezra 3, 4 that they celebrated the Feast of Booths. So we know that they did celebrate the Feast of Booths 100 years prior, which was after Joshua, well after Joshua. So how do we understand this? There's two basic interpretations of this verse in Nehemiah 8, 17. One is that the Israelites had neglected the aspect of camping out. That they had celebrated uh, the, fi the, fi the festival, the feast, uh, but they had neglected that component of it. And as previously mentioned, it would be an easy command uh, to compromise. Say, well, like, it's just not convenient. We, you know, we, we have homes already. This was only a requirement for those who were in the wilderness, and we're using the time to reflect upon that wilderness time, but we're not going to actually go out and live in the booths. That's, that seems a little bit ridiculous. Right, so they compromised on that requirement. That's really the, the reading that I think is implied by the, the punctuation of the ESV and most of the translations, in fact. The second one is that the Israelites followed the rules of the festival, but the last time they experienced this much joy was, when, was in the days of Joshua. Right? And, that, and that's also possible from the Hebrew. Uh, it would maybe punk, be punctuated a little differently, but that applies that 
you know, that second sentence in verse 17, there was very great rejoicing. That applies that rejoicing to that clause, right? That the day of, uh, that they had not experienced it since the, um, the time of Joshua, from the days of Joshua. So both are, are possible, but I, I think the consensus does favor the first option, that, that it seems like one of the aspects that had fallen uh, uh, by the wayside in their celebration of the Feast of Booze was was the gathering together of the branches, the putting together of these booths and living in them for a week. But the, the, that doesn't minimize the greatness of their rejoicing. Right? It's no less remarkable. And in fact, as I, as I was saying, I think it's, it's incredible that they rejoiced at being so inconvenienced. It means that they rejoiced in doing something that previous generations ignored because it wasn't convenient. And so previous generations had had tried to skate by on a technicality, maybe. But this generation greatly rejoiced in obeying, especially where it was inconvenient, where it was created a hardship upon them. Once again, it concludes with Ezra reading from the book of the law every day of the feast in verse 18 there. And so they've enjoyed this whole week with insightful preaching. They've been enriched by the fellowship that they've enjoyed with their neighbors, within their families. They've had excellent grilled filet of lamb paired with glasses of sweet wine. And so then the day after the celebration on the 22nd day of the month, the assembly returned for one more celebration, uh, this solemn assembly. And we'll look next week at, at how they go back to a time of repentance. They take a day off, then they gather again for a time of con- confession of sin a day later. So it's not difficult to become so caught up in, in kind of the finer points of doctrine that we fail to uphold the very plain and obvious commandments. We spend hours each day reading and debating Bible trivia or the latest political buzz while failing to spend quality time with our spouse and children. We dawdle the minutes away on on trivial and fleeting matters while neglecting the weightier matters that have eternal value. And let me be clear, I say this confidently because I understand my own tendencies to fail in these very things. But when we try to, to, to do the right thing, oftentimes we're grumbling in our hearts. And we just don't want to do what we know we're supposed to do. We might even feel incapable of doing it, as Paul says in Romans 7. And so Paul does say there's nothing good that dwells in our flesh, Romans seven eighteen. When we want to do what's right, evil lies close at hand. Verse 21, however, it also says that he experienced delight in the law of God, Romans seven twenty-two. in his inner being. So what's he saying? <clears throat> He's saying that there's this war between his mind and his flesh. There's a spiritual warfare that's taking place as God is at work within him His flesh is constantly fighting against it. 
the fact remains we will not enjoy all of the benefits of God's promises when we're not living according to his revealed will. I would imagine that obeying with joy is a challenge for all of us, depending upon the command. All of us are guilty of grumbling from time to time. And maybe there's a theological concern there. We know that those who love Jesus will keep his commandments, John 14, 15. In fact, doing his will is evidence of God's grace in our lives, Ephesians 2, 10, James 2, 14 through 26. Maybe we think that when we read something like James 1, 22, as we did earlier, be doers of the word and not hearers only. We must immediately follow it up with something about our inability to do it. I think that's good counsel for those who are trying to save themselves by their good works. As we've already clarified, you are justified. You are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. Legalism will not save anyone. But those who are saved will desire to please the God who saved them. A true and living faith is always accompanied by good works. As that confession of faith tells us in chapter 11, verse 2, or section 2, faith, thus receiving and resting on Christ, that's, that's defining faith for us. What is faith? Faith is receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness. His righteousness, not our righteousness. We're receiving and resting the imputed righteousness of Christ which is the alone instrument of justification. Clear as crystal. Goes on to say, yet is it not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces and is no dead faith, but works by love. So when a passage of scripture brings immediate conviction, it's appropriate to respond with the marvelous joy of obedience. In fact, it's a sin to respond with anything less. James 4.17. So we should acknowledge it's the Spirit of Christ who enables us to respond in obedience, but that does not permit us to grow negligent in our duties. Again, the Confession chapter 16 teaches us that. Well, at the end of your Bible, in Revelation chapter 7, John envisioned a great multitude. We'll conclude with this. He envisioned a great multitude of saints from every nation, clothed in white, waving palm branches before the throne of God. I mentioned earlier that the Feast of Booths pointed to Christ tabernacling among us, but the culmination of the Feast of Booths is all of God's people rejoicing in their glorious redemption before his throne for all eternity. That's the symbolism there of gathering together with the palm branches. Those branches, they signify the victory that Christ has purchased and preserved for them. That means that the vision that John had depicts what the festival that we just read about anticipates. It's a joy that's been made available to every nation through the death of Jesus. And so when we study God's law with the purpose of glorifying him, we will strive to obey it with joy. Let's ask for his help in doing so. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we 
We thank you, Lord, for this time of worship, this whole service where we can see and hear and be reminded of your promises, your goodness to us, that it is full of your grace, your compassion. And we oftentimes only celebrate and rejoice in, in the aspects that, that, that don't inconvenience us. Or that call us to faith and give us those blessings and benefits, even, even transforming our lifeless and dead hearts, or in giving life to us, give, granting us the gift of faith. That is a gracious work of your spirit. But help us also to rejoice in the grace of gratitude, the grace that causes us to be filled with thankfulness and a heart that desires to understand your will for our lives and to apply it. Lord, and, and we fail, we, we see in our own tendencies, Lord, a, a desire to do what pleases us more than what pleases you. And when it inconveniences us, we make every excuse to do our will. But Lord, help us to have an increasing love and a desire for your word and to obey your commands and to be filled with the marvelous joy of obedience. For your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I invite you to stand as we sing our hymn of response, Like a River Glorious, hymn 485.